On today's Contract 2020 TA Education, I'm talking with NC Chair Jody Revan about Section 1. All right, Jody, up front, what was the mindset of the NC going into negotiating Section 1? Mainly that not a lot was going to change except for maybe shoring up some of the management rights protections and just making the document read more clearly. So last time was a pretty big move by the pilot group to allow all of these partnership agreements and the PDU restrictions thereof with the goal of growing you know, our airline and both protecting our jobs from outsourcing. Since the company failed to devote any resources, you know, to build out the IT, and that department was largely in competition with taking on Hawaii. So no real budget dollars were spent between the last CBA and this one to take advantage of those partnership agreements and being able to sell on foreign points of sale, being able to have rapid rewards and something other than dollars, et cetera. So it was really just a, you know, kind of a cleanup and make sure that it will do, you know, what we're comfortable with, but no real new ground to be given up. And before we get into the individual provisions, how would you compare our Section 1 with other carriers? Oh, man, that's a great question. And there's really no disagreement that, especially in the area of scope, compared to the big four uh, and even probably UPS and FedEx, our scope is second to none. And our, our Section 1, by extension, is you know, uh, people that are new to airlines kind of don't really understand the difference between those two words, uh, scope and partnerships. You know, a scope meaning who can fly on our metal. And that's been sort of the sins of the past by most carriers with, you know, outsourcing pilot jobs to smaller regional airlines. And that's been what people are the most worried about and should be. And then when you start talking about partnerships, you also have Interline, where you get 100% of the revenue, carry 100% of the passengers, or code share, well, where you put your code on another carrier. We've been able to protect ourselves for flying uh, domestically and even the transborder leg for anything that we are interested in allowing uh, passenger feed. So it really is uh, second to none, and our team from the outset intended to keep it that way. And that was our direction from our board. And that stays in attacked in contract 2020? Absolutely. All those P2 restrictions, all the um, requirement for us to fly the transporter leg for any leg that is flown on a partnership, you know, has to also have a corresponding leg that feeds it on Southwest Airlines. When the P2 restrictions are hit into a market, Southwest has to, you know, uh, serve that market or wind down the partnership. So it it all still uh, remains intact. So all of the structure remains intact, the layout and limitations, but what has changed in contract 2020? Yeah, so the company probably didn't see this coming, or, or maybe they did, and they just didn't get the language in like they needed it, but the restriction for state-owned enterprises, how does that work? So currently, if there is a state-owned enterprise, even 1%, the company would have to come to SWAPA, pitch the, the idea to them, this is a company we want to partner with, and then it would be voted on by the board of directors, and then they would enter that partnership, and it you know, takes anywhere from 12 to 18 months to negotiate one of those, and then they could start taking advantage. That state ownership blew up over the pandemic. The pandemic drove a fundamental change to the ownership of most airlines so that you really only have three types of ownership now. You, know, you have a privately owned airline, you have a publicly traded airline, 
And then you have airlines uh, with either all state ownership or even partial state ownership. So, you know, governments around the world were providing, you know, emergency funding to keep, you know, countless carriers uh, for just from going out of business. You could even argue that the federal government funding of Southwest Airlines through the PSP program uh, provided some sort of state ownership, if only temporary. So it basically means that the way our language was structured the last time around and by not agreeing to any exclusions, the partnership language was by and large unusable for the company in Latin America uh, and Canada and and many of our partners uh, in the East and West uh, code share regions. So then what's our response or how do we address that? So this time we've agreed with a partnership type of mentality, meaning if we're going to agree to go ahead and put some of these down on paper, there needs to be some sort of value that's achieved for the pilot group that I can you know, demonstrate. So we're certainly open to do that with the state ownership. So we actually have a list that we've agreed that we will put on the Swappa website so that every Swappa pilot with a password, you know, we'll start out with this list. You can look at it. We would ask that you protect that for, you know, reasons of uh, competition and in the marketplace, but you can go on and look at those and the company's going to agree to another couple of percent in the market-based cash balance plan as a result of that. And then if there's any further they want, they can once again, come to the board of directors on a case-by-case basis if they, if they don't live on that list. Isn't that similar to what they did back in 16, though? Didn't we have a list? Yeah. So when we inherited TA1 back in 2015, they had a a list, an exclusionary list, and they were going to put it in the back of the CBA, but the pilot group was never going to see it. So the language still remained the same that, you know, hey, the company will not enter into any airline partnership with a state-owned carrier or affiliates thereof. But the exclusion list was kind of a secret. I called it the Pelosi Plus. You vote on it and you never get to see it. So we had a constitution change after that called Agreements of the Association that said that, you know, anything that touches this area would have to be seen and and voted on by a majority vote of your board of directors to kind of prevent that approach from happening again. And then, you know, the company never approached us in 2016 with any exclusions. Shortly after we ratified that TA, the company uh, reached out, in fact, uh, sent over an exclusion list and actually titled it, you know, double secret MOU. And we, you know, regretted to inform them that the, we aren't going to have any of those and don't have any of those. So the company did not get their exclusion list the last time around. It's been a source of frustration for them since, but not uh, been something that impactful because until this year, they hadn't really been in a position to capitalize. And now they are. So it makes sense, you know, with the primary goals of Section 1 that we would allow uh, certain carriers that we're comfortable with. What do you say to the pilots who say, you know, the concession stand is closed? Isn't this a concession? Aren't we giving them Section 1 scope? No, absolutely not. So if you think about what the primary goal, let me read that out. I think you shouldn't read too much on a podcast, but I think this one will drive the point home. The contract reads, the company and the association recognize the primary goal of an airline partnership agreement is the continued growth of SWA and the SWA master seniority list by providing passenger feed to the company flights, establish, maintain, and or enhance the company's overall market presence. So This is not a concession. This is allowing the company to do exactly what we both agree they should be doing, providing feed for our network, providing ability, you know, to grow the airline, but it actually protects the jobs of Southwest pilots and even, you know, requires that we staff the airline with more Southwest pilots because of our trans-border protections. So 
So no, there, there's no, there's nothing concessionary here at all. This is basically just allowing them, you know, to capitalize on that revenue and feed. And then uh, I think you said it already, but just uh, again, for our listeners who might have missed it, you did say that we did achieve value for this exchange. Yes, uh, twice, honestly. So in the last negotiation, we, we agreed that this was about $160 million worth of added value every year in revenue. But because of the pandemic and the explosion of state ownership, that basically all dwindled and went away because there were no exclusions. So at this time around, we used basically the same 160 million in the negotiating room. And so you'll see that we are industry leading in our retirement, and that was a big part of it. So if we want to agree to this and partner once again with the company, we uh, ended up with another 2%. All right, Jody, that's good about Section 1 airline partnerships, but For the rest of the section, let's talk real quick, starting near the top where we talked about fragmentation. There's some change there, just I think in the layout. Explain that to uh, the pilots, please. Yeah, really, that's just for clarity, you know, because fragmentation could be triggered whether you have a merger or an acquisition. And, And so we wanted to make sure that it read clearly for both in the fragmentation language, meaning if you know, if for some reason you sold off a piece of a carrier that you acquired and there was thresholds that were met, that they had enough aircraft that were going with those, the other carrier would have to offer employment. The same could happen if you merged or if you acquired the company. So we just needed to make the language read more clearly so that both of those possibilities were accounted for in fragmentation. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, fragmentation doesn't even require a merger or an acquisition. That fragmentation language would apply if, you know, the company woke up tomorrow and said, we're getting rid of all the 700s. The other employer would have to offer employment to the pilots that go with those aircraft and that it would be offered in seniority order first and then, of course, handled with the most junior if, if you didn't get volunteers. So the next section that I see that has some changes originally was titled foreign domiciles, and we've changed that to domiciles outside the CONUS. Can you speak to that change? Yeah, that was just to make sure that we identified some possibilities. For instance, if you opened up a a crew base in Hawaii, you know, it has some unique challenges to, you know, healthcare being a little bit different and uh, quite a few other things. So we wanted to be able to make sure we drove the company to meet and agree to those things before it takes place. And that's one of the fundamental strengths of our reopener language is that you basically can't put, you know, if those provisions into place until SWAPA agrees. And so we wanted to make sure, you know, that we weren't overlooking a possibility like Hawaii. You mentioned that they hadn't invested in uh, the technology for partnerships until just recently. So Jody, is there any reason why they would want it more now than they did? Yeah, absolutely. With onboarding of all the maxes, you know, when this was originally negotiated, I remember uh, talking with Tom Windsor and he said, well, most of these markets are markets that we can't serve. Well, that's not the case now. So even more important now to if you're kind of on that PDU restriction line of if this market is going to have the demand that we need it to have, if it's going to be profitable. Now we have an aircraft that can serve it. So if we can fill up that PDU bucket, you know, going east or west, uh, 375 or 875, and we can reach that market with our aircraft, the company has to begin service. So this is actually uh, mutually beneficial that we start to take advantage of that language. And then one last thing, before we move on to the next question, I just wanted to remind that that brings up a good point. We do have the video from 2016 that we had. It's a little cartoon video that's available for pilots to review since really the the mechanics of Section 1 haven't changed. 
that's a, a good resource for our guys to understand kind of how the 875 and 375 and all the other 900 PDU limits all work together. Absolutely. It's a really good uh, resource. I mean, we've got new board members that weren't even here when that animation was recorded or even this language. So it's good for everybody to to dive into that. And it's a very quick and entertaining and informative way to look at how our, our PDUs work. We've had countless Section 1 compliance meetings since then. As in, there's no real disagreement between us and the company. So it, it's time for them to go out and, uh, and take advantage of it. And that reopener brings us to the next section, really, that has changes, and that is the reopener language. Describe those changes and what we achieved in reopener language. We just brought over some more things that required the company, you know, to meet and agree, you know, with SWAPA before they make those changes and kind of were able to show the company that that's in their benefit too. Because if you remember in the reopener agreement, it says it's reopened for the sole purpose uh, of negotiating wages, rates of pay, relocation expenses, bidding hours, or conditions of employment. So, you know, it, it was a long time coming to convince the company that you want this. You don't, you don't want to reopen the CBA in its entirety every time you have a change that isn't accounted for here. So we were able to get that point across and get the company to agree. We brought over uh, protections for, you know, you hear right now the boogeyman is the single pilot. That's covered and not allowed for our Section 1 reopener. They couldn't put that into place unless they met and we agreed on that. Also, the augmented crews, if that were ever a situation that you know, the company wanted to augment. And, that, and there was a little bit of a scare there with the, the California crew mill dust up over the lawsuit. I believe it was Alaska Airlines. So we quickly identified that, you know, risk and covered that, put that into section one. Also protections with the profit sharing. We brought those over here. What about the uh, conduct training at a location other than Southwest uh, in Dallas? Yeah, absolutely. That was just uh, like pulling teeth. But the company finally agreed and saw that it was to their benefit as opposed to trying to nail down every different training scenario where we could actually have some other simulators. So yeah, we were able to achieve that as well. And then I'm looking at the language and the other thing I see is that we did bring over the reopener language from our retirement language currently that talks about a reopener if they modify the profit sharing formula. Yeah, that uh, and that's really more of a reorganization. It lives somewhere else in the contract, but we pulled it over here so that, you know, if a new hire or somebody's reading this for the first time and they hear about a change and they, they just kind of want to, hey, is that a reopener or not? And, and so they can try to have a one-stop shop of where you can find things that, you know, would trigger that. So the last two sections that have any real changes, I guess, uh, would be management rights and administration of the contract. And both of those are more focused on SWAPA and Southwest, not directly to our pilots, but explain to the pilots those changes in those sections and, and how that'll help us going forward. Yeah, the management rights was a big deal because it seemed like the way we were negotiated with throughout the pandemic to include, you know, uh, the company unilaterally rolling out the EXDO program before we had finished, you know, bargaining at what that looked like. We wanted to make sure that we achieved something in the contract that prevented that from happening again. And, and we did both here in the management rights section of section one and also and the specific leaves section where we said, hey, you, you'll never do this again, basically uh, um, without SWAPA's concurrence and full agreement. Then the contract admin part, it, it just as basically outlines and is, makes a more clarity in how they work together under the administration of the contract so that, you know, it, it's not a, a lot uh, of additional things that are provided for by the RLA, 
but it was really more of an education and a kind of a one-stop place to look at how the company has to do business with the association. And so I do feel like that's clearer now and a little more definitive about what the company can and cannot do and how they have to deal with the association. Thanks for listening. For more information, check out the Contract 2020 TA Education page on swapa.org.